Welcome to the Sun-Dried Tomatoes Podcast. I'm your host and creator, Anthony Oates. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can find the audio-only version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Please follow, download, and subscribe where applicable. For those listening to the audio version, I also have a video version on the Sun-Dried Tomatoes YouTube channel. Please subscribe there as well and check out other shows that will feature sports, brewing, food, and music, including my original series, Legends of the Diamond, Brewing the Facts, and of course, Random Reactions, a show where I talk about a new story from the past week and give my take on it in interesting ways. Season 2 is on the way, starting February 10th. There's also a fantasy football show with a twist from this past season, uh, starring uh, my fiance here, which I'll introduce in a second. Quest for the Green Bowl, these shadows of chaos. Learn how my league did throughout the season while being mixed in with my epic sci-fi post-apocalyptic cosmic horror theme story, where we've all been transported into the future to win an ancient relic, our trophy, in order to save the world from chaotic living shadows. The lore-only videos are now available on the YouTube channel as well for those that don't really care about fantasy football. You can also follow me on Instagram at eclectic underscore yozo. That's E-C-L-E-C-T-I-C underscore I-O-Z-Z-O. I have companion pieces for my YouTube videos, and you can get to know me a little bit better as well. This month, I am joined by my beautiful fiancé. Alexandria Yoder Fox, who's currently going for a master's in horticulture at the University of Minnesota. Uh, she's a creative person, also likes to paint art, which I, I have some of her art pieces. Paint art. <laughs> yeah. You're an artistic painter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I have to, you know, I have to differentiate because some people paint walls. <laughs> like what? Okay, that's yeah, true. Some people are hardware painters. Um, you mean house painters? Yeah, house painters. You're also <laughs> an animal person helping to rescue and spay and neuter cats, uh, yep. taking care of a colony in our backyard here. Uh, you know, we could get about that a little bit later. It, also, you love video games, just like myself, including some of those old classics growing up. And, and I know this sounds like a lot of random things, but since a new random reaction season is coming up here, I thought it would be fun to talk about uh, some horticulture with your horticulture background, plus, uh, you know, your work with the Neighborhood Cat Colony and video games. We're getting all crazy on this podcast. You know, I actually did a funny playthrough on some old classic Atari games on episode 10 of Random Reaction Season 1. You can go check that out on my YouTube channel. But Alex, are you excited to talk about all these random things today? Yeah, yes. <laughs> I like how you're just like, yes, like it's the radio interview that you did. I'm, <laughs> I'm not great on camera, Yeah, but well, I'll try. I mean, are you great on mic? Because that's really what this is about. So uh, yeah. I can I can ham it up for the mic. Yeah, that's forget about the camera. You know, I, it's hard to forget about the camera. <laughs> that's what most people. It's twenty twenty two. It changes our brains, right? It's like yeah. you know that the camera's on you. Yeah, I'm being watched. You know? I feel like that's why a... Candid Camera was such a crazy show when we were kids. You know, mm-hmm. I don't even know. Do they still do Candid Camera? I don't even know. Um, All I know is the jingle, but I'm not singing it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's up to you. No, 
you know, of course we're going to, we're going to have our fun topics later with video games. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with that, but I did want to get a little bit of, about horror culture. And of course I know this, but uh, you're studying right now. It's also winter in Minnesota, but it's not too early to plan for your garden. And I'm sure you're already thinking about your garden uh, as you've done many gardens, but yeah, you know, tell everyone about your, uh, what got you into horticulture? You know, it started kind of as a hobby and then you decided, and you, you you learned a lot just by doing things. And then you decided, you know what, I'm going to get a degree in this. So so what kind of went into that? Well, it, it started before it was a hobby. It was just something that I would help my mom with. You know, when I was younger, we always had a garden. Um, my grandma, my grandpa always had a garden. They were, my grandma was, grew up on a farm. She always loved growing vegetables, no matter where she lived. As she got older, that got passed on to my mom. My mom passed it on to me. It was always so close to my identity as a person that I never really even thought about it being a career. It was just sort of a, a part of who I was, a part of my personality, um, and when I was first diagnosed with endometriosis in 2018, those are our cats playing. Um, <laughs> there was a lot of unknowns uh, for me during that time. And I was experiencing a lot of chronic pain. And one of the only things that kind of got me up and motivated was thinking about what I was going to do with my plants that day or what I was going to do um, with the garden plot, it was actually a farm that I was helping to cultivate, um, I think between 2017 and no, 2016 and 2018. Yeah. What was that called again? It was called bare bones cooperative farm. Yeah, you... It was not started by me. Um, it was started by a number of wonderful people who were part of, um, a really cool community of, growers in the Madison area and the co-op that I used to live in, I lived in a housing co-op for a few years, they acquired sort of the seeds and the rights to kind of continue the operation. And I um, just started volunteering with my friends to learn what it was like to grow and sell organic produce and that was kind of my first experience on growing things for money. Not that we made a lot, but um, it was it was a really cool learning experience that um, I wouldn't trade in for the world. And you guys kind of got a grant for that, right? Yeah, we had to apply. We wrote an application for a grant. Um, it was through the... Um, it was through Silverwood Park, which was established in honor of, um, oh, I can't remember her name, but um, she entrusted this land to the town of Edgerton and she wanted it to be used for education and um, environmental preservation and um, kind of like um, all kinds of different activities that had to do with getting the community together in a in a good way. And so part of that land was turned into um, plots that you could basically apply to grow food on or flowers or whatever you wanted. So, yeah. so and there was other people that had mm -hmm. plots as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I have been at the farm. It, it was actually pretty amazing to see how much that you guys had. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, I, you know, I met some of the people that were in it. And everyone seemed like cool people, but it was just crazy to think that it was just you couple of people there and, and you had to, yeah well there were a lot so there were some very things. knowledgeable people who were who had far more experience than I who were kind of you know designing how everything was going to be laid out and which rows were going to be dedicated to which crop and how we were going to manage and irrigate everything and I was just kind of there to learn and do the best I could with with the physical labor which was hard for me to do at the time um, but as I got stronger since, you know, I realized that a big motivation for me in my recovery from my surgery and all of the things that come along with having stage four endometriosis, um, was just wanting to get back out there. Yeah. So that was a big part of it for me. And I remember before it, it took a little bit to kind of get everything organized. I feel you didn't necessarily have the irrigation hoses and everything at first. So I was helping you water these things by hand, which was pretty intense. We well, had to carry buckets from this shed the, in the farm and, and walk over there. There, there was a number of, of wells on the property that were really wonderful and ancient at the same time and so sometimes we had issues with trying to figure out you know when to put in um pipe irrigation and when not to but yeah. we figured it out yeah that came out pretty good i remember eating some of that. i remember you brought a whole box of garlic home which is Mm-hmm. Being an Italian, I made a lot of sauce with that garlic. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was really nice looking garlic. Yeah, oh, yeah and then the thick stalks and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of a lot of good stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked about how you had to, you kind of learned how to sell a little bit too. Kind of, even though you didn't make a lot. Yeah, that that is kind of a whole part of horticulture. A lot of people don't really understand. You know, some people will grow things in their backyard, or, or they'll go to the farmers markets, the CSAs, and things like that, but. Um, they might purchase something, but they don't think about the behind the scenes. So, I mean, what was that like? Yeah. Well, it makes you realize how much work goes into harvesting the food that we eat every single day. And um, there's just so much hard labor that goes into the production and the harvesting of food. I think people mistakenly believe that since it's called industrial ag, that machines do all the work. Um, but it's still mostly done by in, incredibly, um, in, incredibly strong individuals who are usually not paid uh, for the amount of time they're devoting. They have to work during, you know, fire season in California. They have to work during, you know, near hurricane-like conditions in Oregon, and and deal with different things. I mean, if you do, or, a lot of people don't realize, but when you do organic growing you can't use certain things that people use pesticides and things and and you can get it done but it does make it difficult sometimes yeah and it of course the standards for what is considered organic is constantly susceptible to the government changing their mind so that makes things even more complicated so of course so many people might have gardens where they buy things that are already grown and they start their gardens that way you know i see a lot of people with that um, you, you actually plant from seeds, and I'm guessing that kind of goes back to uh, the collective that you're a part of as well, because you guys grew everything from seed, and you've done that before, mm-hmm. but, you know, you've grown pumpkins here in our backyard, squash, 
of varieties of flowers, including dahlias, very pretty dahlias, herbs, carrots, asparagus, kale, etc. You know, I could go on and on. You've grown a lot of different things. Yeah. A lot of people maybe don't realize, but you know, what do you think is the main difference to essentially making a garden from scratch as opposed to designing a garden from someone else's work that they started? You know, what's some of the main differences? So I guess um, for a lot of people, um, their garden is, they want it to look a very specific way and they have really strong visions as to what they want to grow. And sometimes just cutting out the process of starting it from seed means you have even more time during the growing season to really fill out what you want it to look like. And that's especially true if you really like growing annual crops. So that's like, um, you know, zinnias are a really popular annual flower. Cosmos are very popular. Um, But then you also have begonias and patience. So those are things people like to buy from the store because they're really showy. They're pretty. Um, and you buy them every year when you live in um, a, a, <laughs> when you live in a climate where there's four seasons. <laughs> if you lived in California, I suppose you could just have the same annuals, you know, growing all the time. They would never die. Yeah. Um, but when you live in a place like Minnesota um, or Wisconsin, or Wisconsin, your annuals they always die eventually. And so that kind of started making me more curious about what it would be like to have a perennial garden or what it would be like to have a mostly perennial garden with maybe some biennial food crops like carrots, for example, those are actually biennial. There's also a lot of crops that you can grow into the winter. If you keep them, you know, a certain temperature using maybe some straw or some covering like kale um, certain lettuces, beets, for example. So these are things that you might even be able to keep growing through the winter using like a, um, some type of a hoop house or even a cold frame. And the cool thing about that is that when you're not constantly putting new plants in and removing old ones, you're actually building soil quality over time. And, the goal for me would be to find a way to um, increase soil health. And that's usually called restorative egg. Um, the idea is that instead of just continuously using the soil as this temporary growing medium, you're actually treating it like it's part of the larger ecosystem, which it is. And so soil health is something that everyone can agree, a really important thing right now, because um, across America, uh, it's degrading quickly because of just some really old fashioned um, industrial farming practices that were really great for feeding the most amount of people the cheapest, which kept us all living through some really difficult times. Um, But it's not actually really great for the future. of food production or ecosystem preservation. So that's kind of why I started doing some experiments in my own garden to see what, how I could grow certain things, you know, without having to rip stuff up every year. Um, yeah, I've been impressed with some of the things you've done because, you know, I've seen people grow things and I've tried to grow herbs from seeds and sometimes succeeded and sometimes 
I don't know if the seeds were old or what happened, but nothing grew and I was a little disappointed. Well, the biggest challenge when you're starting seeds in a place like Minnesota is getting them adequate light during the months when they're still inside. You have to start the seeds inside early. Um, and you certainly can't be doing that here in, in April because it's still only like maybe 15 degrees outside. I don't so know you, if it's that cold in April. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we get snowstorms. Yeah. Yes. And even one snowstorm in April that kills your seedlings. They haven't, yeah, they have, they to have be inside, exactly. And it's difficult to get them adequate light, even if you have the proper grow lights. So that's what people struggle with the most. And um, it takes some creative problem solving and some being comfortable with a little bit of clutter. But yeah, if you, have it's, space, you just you just have to tr it's trial and error, trial and error. I usually do multiple sets just in case, just in. Yeah, just in case um, if certain seedlings get too leggy because they didn't have enough light, I'll start them again. Um, you know, it's, it's also a great idea to direct. So, you know, just put the seeds directly in the ground, especially when you live in a place like this, like the minute the ground is thawed, if the, if the species can handle it, you can kind of just throw them right in the ground, cover them with a little straw and say a prayer. Usually that works really good. Yeah. Um, I'd like to do more of that this year. Which, to be honest, when I when you first told me about the randomness of straw, how it could like burst in flames or like internal, <laughs> I did, I didn't tell you that. I think you looked it up on the you found it on the internet. It was pretty intense. <laughs> so I've never heard of that like actually happening. Of, of uh, straw and stuff, you have to keep it dry, I guess. But yeah, you know, I mean, it does mold. It would be a little insane to uh, to be like, hmm, this seems a little hot. And then you put your foot through and you're like engulfed in flames. Well, why don't you explain what you're talking about? <laughs> to people that don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just read it up. So I I'm not an expert on this at any means. But from what I've read, if, it get, if something happens with the moisture, if, uh, if the straw itself gets, if it's still, you know, bailed Too up. Too compact. And compacted. Yeah. Uh, and it gets moisture in it. Um, it actually can start to create a rise in the temperature in the center of the bale. And what happens is, is it could catch on, it essentially internally combusts. So right. it catches on fire and you might not know because it's inside the bale. And then, you know, you go to put your hand or your foot on it and suddenly you're like engulfed in flames because you collapse into the center. Uh, so it's, uh, that it, sounds like a, well, you're not That's actually like a horror story. Yeah, you're not That's, actually engulfed in flames. What really, what really happens is that it sometimes, you know, causes people's <laughs> barns to burn down when they're not aware of it. Yeah, that's I mean, that's usually people aren't just falling into. Yeah, but that is flaming dangerous. balls of straw. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and you're sure this was straw was, and not hay? It, it was both. It, that would be okay. a good song, though. Flaming balls of, of straw. Flaming balls of hay. <laughs> I guess. I get for for some kind of, you know. Yes, for some sort of farm county song. band. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's better than some of the crap that they have out there, is what I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. You know. So obviously growing from seed getting into horticulture we're also in trying times right now of course i feel like learning how to grow your own food seems pretty important with everything that's going on right now 
but I do have to say that there's a crazy stigma, and we've talked about this many times, uh, with like homeowners associations and even the city sometimes having ordinances that make it actually difficult to use your land to grow food or other things, especially the front yards, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they want everyone to have that that nasty turf grass that as a kid, I was always like, why do people waste their land with this stupid grass? Like, you know, I didn't like it. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? And, and, and what do you think things have changed in the government? Well, I'm not going to talk about turf grass because that would bleed me on too many tangents, yeah, did, but actually, I will say did a thesis on that, I believe, so. it's not, a, well, yeah, technically, but it's uh, anyway, <laughs> there's usually two, there's like mainly two barriers that are that are pretty universal for people in this country who might want to grow their own food, but for whatever reason they they can't or they're unable to. And one is that they don't have enough time. Um, we you know we live in a country where we're kind of expected to work um, when we're awake and when we're fed. And so at the you know there's not a lot of extra time, <laughs> especially if you have family, if you have things that you need to take care of, children, pets, um, elderly family members, um, if you live in a multi-generational home, sometimes that can ease the pressure. But of course, um, multi-generational homes are, um, they're not what's kind of the media's favorite way of portraying the American family. It's always encouraged that when you get to be a certain age, you move out and you buy your own house. Well, It's pretty hard for two people who are both working full time to pay their mortgage to also grow their own food. So families have to make sacrifices if they want to start growing their own food. And you're talking about sustainable food, right? Like not just growing a couple of crops. Even just a couple. Yeah. Even just a couple. If you're not really sure where to cut corners, you end up with a lot more work uh, than what it's worth. Organization and then people, well, and it's not, it's not part of the education system. We're we're not really like we're not really teaching children um these things in school. So unless they've they their parents' culture, their the culture of their family teaches it to them. They're not going to know. People aren't going to know where to start. It's very intimidating. Mm -hmm. So that's just the first barrier. The second barrier is that um, most cities in the United States have regulations that really dictate what you can and can't put in your yard. Um, And these are holdover from, I guess, a time when... um, I I guess they wanted people to be spending as much money as possible on products that were grown here in the United States and turf grass is one of them. And it was kind of an Americana thing. Like you put the grass in your yard and there's also a lot of really shady colonial roots with turf grass. And I don't even want to get into that. Um, It's just nuts because there are natural grasses like turf grass isn't even necessarily natural to most of our places. No, it's not. It's not most, uh, most turf grasses are not even native to the United States. They're just grown here. Um, And then given to people to put in their yards because they can withstand a number of different temperature issues like say say there's a drought well there's turf grass that people buy specifically um in say the southern united states in drought prone areas because it stays green um but of course it's not native and and it doesn't it's kind of like a 
biological desert. There's not really um, as many organisms, you know, because of that, because it's not really supposed to be there. But it's the stigma, right? Dandelions are weeds, but are they? Some people make tea out of them. So, yeah, dan- dandelions are fascinating plants, and they're totally harmless. But you know, there were ads in the '60s and '70s that were put out in all the newspapers that shamed people um, into basically killing them with with uh, herbicides because. Mm-hmm. You know, as these ads would say, like only poor people eat dandelions, you know, only only poor people have dandelions in their yard. You know, a successful American has a manicured lawn and um, it's uh, there's there's a lot (laughs) there's a lot of problems with it, especially since we now have some of those products in lawsuits because people got cancer from them. Yeah, that's a whole other story. Rabbit hole. That's a whole other story. Again, I'm not saying that there aren't cases where pesticide and herbicide use is really important, Um, but in general, applying it to places where children are supposed to play, Mm -hmm. not a, not a really good idea. We see it walking around our neighborhood. There's several places where they have this tiny little sign in the corner of the yard that says like, keep your pets and, and, and that don't, cause you know, there's chemicals on this grass. And you look and it's just this green grass and there's not anything else growing on it. But then you realize, I barely saw that. And it was in one corner of the entire lot. Right. How is that okay? Well, because the way that these products are regulated by the government is as if it is a one-time exposure. So you're basically, the calculations that the scientists are doing are saying, People who are exposed to this quantity during this period of time, whether it's through application or after the application is done, they'll be fine. We've done the calculations. We've done the tests. It's not going to hurt you. But what they're not doing them on are lifetimes worth of exposures. Not to mention what um, that might Yeah, not, not to mention what it's like for people, again, who work in the ag industry, who plant and tend and harvest our food who have to continuously use these these products day after day after day um that's that's an even higher lifetime exposure um that's that's not even something that's almost covered by any of the current studies that have been done and um anecdotally we see a lot of people with certain kinds of cancers um who have spent far more than their fair share of their lifetime being exposed to these products. So, you know, it's complicated, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a complicated thing. The problem with turf, the main, and my main issue with turf grass is that in order to maintain it, it's usually important for people to use products that can actually harm them. If you want it to look green, if you want it to be weed free, you have to use post-emergent herbicides. So that's going to be any and, and anything that attacks anything that's a broad leaf. So anything other than a grass. So that's literally <laughs> almost everything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's the, that's yeah. The and and those things are are they're they're they are if they are not conducive to certain kinds of life, then you have to ask yourself, um, why do I want to 
be sitting on it and have my kids playing in it. That's, that's my issue. Yeah. It's okay if it's for decoration, right? If you're, if this turf grass is being used for, for decorative horticulture purposes, I understand that. But in parks where kids are supposed to play in people's lawns, Mm -hmm. uh, it makes me, it makes me very hesitant. Not to mention that the, the sort of turf grass that they, I always thought that it hurt. Like, you know, walking barefoot, I never wanted to do that on that grass. But when people had like literally like crabgrass or some some of those flatter grasses mm-hmm. or just ground cover, I found myself not caring as much being in the yard barefoot, you know? Yeah, because it's not as itchy. Yeah. But there, there's there's sports that people play, like golf, for instance, yeah, where golf, the kind of turf grass really matters because yeah. it, it it actually changes the way that the ball moves. Mm-hmm. So I'm and not, they have I'm to not use even a lot of chemicals. On those <laughs> yeah, they do. It's probably one of the things that's the worst thing about golf is the fact that uh, the golfers don't realize it, but you talk about that long-term exposure um, that happens to a lot of golfers. There's higher rates of uterine cancer and in, in female professional golfers. Yeah, I don't want to be a buzzkill. I know some people like to golf and I'm not saying anything bad about the sport, but the, you know, the, the thing is, is that that is something we should talk about. I, I think that this shows the importance that horticulture is and you talked about it maybe not being in school i think it should be more in like high schools i think kids should learn this stuff at a younger age like why aren't we teaching our kids the importance of uh something that literally is life-sustaining like we need it you mean you mean growing plants growing plants growing. it's also a very ancient human thing right so people have been collecting seeds and growing plants as they moved and migrated for honestly since since we could probably carry our infants with two hands um so it's really important um to kind of i guess what was i gonna say and this is also the anthropology and her she has a degree in anthropology as well oh oh god (laughs) um I guess my point is that one of the reasons why I wanted to go into horticulture is because I think more people would be able to grow plants to sustain their lives, whether it's actual food or herbs because it's herbal medicine or because it's an ornamental plant that they love and that brings them joy. More people would do that if they had the time Mm -hmm. and the resources and if they lived in cities that allowed them to do so. Yeah. So um, I want to see an America where more people have the privilege to um, grow what they please. And think about maybe, uh, think about neighborhoods kind of getting together. I've seen it before where maybe there's like a, a plot or something that everybody in the neighborhood could kind of get together and then they kind of start their own co-op just for their neighborhood. You know? Those are very, those are very, they can be very effective. Um, the issue is that, you know, there's, there's sometimes, sometimes because of the way that they're managed, there's opportunities for barriers to access, even in those community run plots. Yeah. So, you know, they can only, so, so my real hope would be for everybody to just honestly be able to grow what they please on their property. Yeah, I, mean, that's the I don't point. really understand what the point of owning property is if the government still gets to tell you that you can only put turf grass on it, something that has no environmental benefit, something that doesn't 
interact with any of the, the native food webs, something that is, is literally fairly useless outside of its aesthetic and the fact that like some people really like to sit on it because it makes them feel like there's maybe less bugs or maybe they like the way it feels. That's fine. If you want to grow turf grass, fine, go right ahead. You should have the right to do so. If you don't, however, um, neighborhood associations and city councils, I don't feel really should have the right to um, tell you otherwise. That's a little weird. It's this weird. Power. Some people get arrested. Some people get yeah. crazy amounts of money. I mean, in the news recently, there's that judge that shamed a cancer patient because right. they couldn't cut their grass. Like, it's just yeah. ridiculous. I'm sorry. Yeah. The well, judge has since apologized, but only because it was caught on video and put everywhere and went viral. I guarantee you that judge wouldn't apologize afterwards. Right. Well, you have our current justice system is, as we all know, very problematic. And unfortunately, the roots of police, policing what people grow um, are like rooted in colonialism and like Jim Crow era politics. So there's a there's a lot there's a lot of problems with these particular regulations and they represent like decades upon decades of just basically inhibiting people from actually um owning what they own yeah uh it's like the subtext here you you just paid off your mortgage congratulations but um you can't you can't yeah you can't put the strawberries in the front because we don't want homeless people to have access to food you know i mean Isn't we don't want them to we, when we lived in Madison, one of the reasons why people couldn't have like fruit trees, I believe, was because of the homeless. They, the homeless people can't, right. they'll, they'll congregate and eat the apples. Like, okay, so what? <laughs> like, like, okay, wouldn't that help the homeless people? If they were so concerned, if, the, if community leaders were so concerned with edible plants being used by homeless and, and being attracted to residential areas they didn't belong in because of it, then a really great solution to that, um, even though their paranoia is uh, really classist and fucked up, excuse me, a really great solution would be to just designate a certain public park to being an urban food center, a place where you where where there were edible plants aplenty and people could harvest and and forage what they wanted at will. Mm -hmm. They've actually done this in certain cities. I bet. Yeah. It I works mean, fine. <laughs> it, def it definitely is something that could be a really great solution. Yeah. But again, it would mean designating a piece of property that the city owns into something that wouldn't be making the money and that's the that's the and thing. that's what no one wants to do right because every single plot needs to be zoned so that it can make someone money and that, that actually is a nice segue into conservation because i mean that also is a little bit about our culture as well um kind of having the correct plants and the correct uh habitats for everything but uh you know, we could talk about it forever. The government wants to take down areas to build places, single family homes that people are going to pay taxes for for them. And, you know, some people might argue, well, but then that's bringing taxes into the city. And the thing is, is I've seen cities do this and I've never seen it. My, the roads still are terrible. There's still no, the parks still aren't that clean. You know, it's just, there's still, it, 
the, the, there's no main street to, to make well in a lot of these towns as well. So it, it seems like they're saying it's to make money, but I don't know where the money is going. You know, I'm not sure. You know, there's still chlorine in our drinking water. So I, I just don't understand, that, you know, what, what really is happening. And we, again, we could go all down conspiracy theory alley on that one. Well, I mean, a great way for any city council or local government to fix the public suspicion that the money isn't being spent properly is to just be transparent. Yeah, that would help. Um, but for some reason, that's not mm-hmm. what any, you know, I think most Americans would really love to know where their tax dollars were actually going. Mm-hmm. Um, none of us really do know. Um, and that's I mean, that's kind of the problem. Council video that there ever is. And they'll discuss certain things, but they don't ever show us the spreadsheet, you know? Right. It's not available online for all of us. Now, like a reporter might be able to get it with a Freedom of Information Act, but even there, they're trying to stop that. And there's a lot of journalists that are stalled yeah, constantly. Or you're forced to pay fees that the reporter might not have at that time, especially right. in a smaller newspaper. So it definitely becomes a problem. But there are places, and one that you volunteered at, Bellwin Conservancy, mm-hmm. that they, they acquired all this acreage and they do a great job of having uh, just just this nice land of all these different things. And, and, and you've, you've volunteered here to do different things, uh, you know, with, uh, they have events there and, you know, they, they do, they, they're really into the whole bison thing and bringing them back. Yeah. And one of the other things that uh, I wanted to get into about the horticulture and you did this at Bellwin, uh, you know, to help them all for events. Uh, uh, illustrating certain things and you could illustrate insects and things like that but you could also illustrate plants it's kind of a big thing and you've done that as well um, and with your art background uh, you know doing different things so and, and you've had shows paint you know some of your paintings in shows and different things like that in Madison before uh, but uh, you know you like to draw on your skill at it so what what kind of goes into that do, do, is that something you're also interested in in horticulture kind of that area um, that it, it is needed, you know, it goes in textbooks, you know, it goes for research and things like that. Yeah. So, so what I, what I like to, I mean, is that something that, uh, you think is very important? Do you think that that's something that uh, you'd continue down into that, uh, to that area and anyone else that is an artist and, and may be interested in something like that as well? Like what, uh, you know, what, what were some of the things that you enjoyed while you did that? Well, I think, I think learning, I think botanical illustration is really important because, but I don't think it should be something that just people who have natural talent in the arts should do. Mm-hmm. I think drawing something that you're studying is a really important teaching tool. Mm-hmm. So if there's something you really want to learn, um, diagramming it for yourself, trying to understand how all of its moving pieces work together. That's, that was how I learned as a kid. Mm -hmm. That's how I learn as an adult and. Can help you plot your garden too. Yeah. Yeah, I can. If you kind of understand the working mechanisms between plants um, and the really special parts of, of each species, then you can kind of zoom out and figure out exactly how things can interconnect in a way that will be well that will make less work for you as the gardener and that's ultimately what what I want for everybody right the 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 biggest yield for the least amount of work 
I mean, because American families were exhausted, like were sick of surviving in this constant state of raggedness and like exhaustion. And if people are going to be able to grow food for themselves, it's going to have to take the least amount of effort possible for the best result. So I think my background in art will probably serve me very well as I maybe create my own business model. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, other people could use that as well. Um, you know, it is, I think it is something cool. I, I think it also adds to the enjoyable part of it as well. Right. Like you could have fun doing this. Like, yeah, it's hard work. You're going to be tired if you do this working in the garden for, especially early on when you really got to make sure everything's going well, you got to water things. This, we had a drought this past year. I know you were in the yard a lot because of the drought. It was causing a lot yeah. of problems. I'm mm-hmm. sure it's causing a lot of people problems. Yeah. You know, uh, but it also could be enjoyable. I mean, yeah, it's hard work, but you could have a good time. And I think having, you know, adding those different elements can also kind of add to that enjoyability. Yeah. Well, there's this idea that you have to get everything perfect. And that's not the case. Um, the cool thing with plants is that if you if you learn if you learn enough about them, you can kind of figure out where you can cut corners, right? And let the plant do the majority of the work for you. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not interested in people growing things for, you know, to win like the American Kennel Club of Roses contest, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in people being able to grow to their own expectations sufficiently, mm-hmm. whether that's having enough tomatoes to make a couple of jars of salsa or a couple of jars of sauce to keep over the winter, or whether that's because they really, really, really want to grow this specific kind of gladiola that reminds them of their grandma and they keep having a pest destroy it. Mm-hmm. Like those are the things that I really care about, not sort of like the textbook horticulturalist values with the capital H that only works at like the conservancy. Um, mm-hmm. There's plants will do the work for you if you just kind of grease the skids in certain ways Mm -hmm. and that's what I'm really interested in in figuring out how to streamline for people Um, because we all live in different climates we all have different soil we all have different growing constraints some of us literally are going to be growing things in buckets because the dirt in our backyard is so contaminated by industrial pollutants that there's no other choice. Um, that doesn't mean you, you, you shouldn't do it. That's not what that means. Uh, it just means that you're going to have to take other factors into consideration and buying, um, a book from the bookstore on how to grow, grow tomatoes probably isn't going to serve you as good as somebody who lives in you know a property on a property with like perfect soil quality and zero pollutant uh ratios so not to mention you know cities building highways over people's neighborhoods and essentially ruining their whole neighborhood right because the government you know they're just worried about a to b they're not worried about you know c underneath right you know, it's kind of a sad thing. Yeah. This, this, the, the soil belongs to all of us, right? So we can all restore it and we can all utilize it. We don't have to just let local restrictions stop us. Mm-hmm. 
speaking of local restrictions, I also want to get into moving a little bit away from horticulture now in the conversation. You're also an animal lover, of course. And of course, there's a kind of hidden behind the rubber tree plant is our cat Kitty Hawk and our other cat Lou is laying around somewhere. And yes, that's a reference to the fifth element, Corbin Dallas <laughs> Multipass. But, uh, you know, you're essentially the lone person, uh, with, with some of us helpers yeah. that, that kind of, you know, help you when needed. Uh, taking the lead on caring for a cat colony that's just in our neighborhood that we didn't create it's just been there it's forever. been there for probably um, decades and you're like the pandemic's made itself but you're trying to get you've gotten some cats spayed and neutered and and you would like to get more so that we can stop the colony from growing right and that's the key right you don't want that happening and i think some people might not really understand why this is important um, and cities don't make it easy either. They, like, you know, police don't help. Like, there's no real help. The humane societies are all random in different places. And our humane society here doesn't really offer that much help. I mean, you know, why is this important uh, for us to do? Because it, it is important. I mean, it affects our ecosystem as well to have these random cat colonies. Not to mention the cruelty of seeing these house cats essentially have to live and die outside. Yeah. Um I think for people to understand why it's an issue, they have to understand like the scale to which the problems eventually get. A few cats roaming your neighborhood that may or may not belong to your neighbors is not necessarily an issue. Um, it is for those cats and it is for the local population of, of small mammals and, and birds that they continuously um, assault, but it's not a super big public issue, like public health crisis. It becomes one when those cats are not neutered um, because they reproduce a lot faster than people realize. And um, you can have multiple litters in one year from one female cat. These litters can have anywhere from like one to six kittens max. Um, they sometimes all survive. So now you suddenly within a nine month period have six, seven cats where you had two, um, and it, and it, the problem is they, they attract house cats. So if there's people in the neighborhood that have unneutered cats or even just very curious cats that might be neutered, but also might be curious, they're more liable, these colonies, to basically act like a magnet so that other cats in the area will be attracted to the colony where they can either catch diseases or become pregnant or impregnate another cat. And so, you know, Moundsview has had a feral cat problem for many, many years. And when we moved here, um, I found out about it fairly quickly just because I know I was observant enough to notice all of the cats that were clearly homeless, um, that were being fed by random people, um, in their backyard. And, uh, there's, there's not something inherently wrong with wanting to feed these animals because they don't belong outside. Yeah. There's no such thing as an outside cat. I mean, if you, if you lived in the middle of nowhere and you had a farm and, um, you could kind of control where this animal went, I could understand how there would be um, more reason to have a permanently outdoor cat, especially a barn cat. I get that. I get that. Yeah. yeah. And those are usually, they just, yeah, they, they are sickly 
they have many diseases, they maybe live a quarter of the lifespan um, that they would if they were indoors. Um, and they're survivors, so they make it work, but they decimate local populations of birds. Um, when you already have insect populations dwindling and therefore bird populations dwindling, the last thing that the birds need is like a nonstop assault from a colony of homeless cats that will continue to kill the birds, whether they're fed or not. It's just their instinct. It's not the cat's fault. In places like Australia, this became such a problem for native and endangered animals being, being predated upon by, by these feral cats that they had to murder thousands and thousands of feral cats. And, we could go and I won't get into the details of that because it was very sad and very they, they violent. Did, they did it to get rid of rats, I believe. They, they actually released the cats themselves. They did it to themselves. Well, I'm not exactly sure of the details of how it began, but how, yeah, how it, it however it began here in America and in communities all over. I mean, even in Minnesota, a place where the winters are regularly dipping into negative 20 plus wind chill. Mm -hmm. You have homeless, feral, stray cat populations skyrocketing right yeah. now. And it's because it's because local leaders don't know what to do. They don't know how to control the population. So there's been a lot of different methods proposed. Um, there's something called TNR which some people believe wholeheartedly in and other people don't. I don't fall on that issue anywhere because I still consider myself somebody who just is learning and trying to do the best that I can as one person. I do know this. If you are live in an area like we do, where you have a lot of homeless cats, if you take a few of them and neuter them and give them to the shelter, that's a great success story, right, for those cats. Unfortunately, it also means that there will be more cats to fill that place. So the way that colonies work is kind of like a pride of lions. And when a male cat is suddenly not there anymore, another stray feral male will come in and fill the place. So you will always have more cats to feed, more cats to take care of, unless you can start to stabilize the colonies and have people in charge of caring for them in situ, if you know what I'm saying, like the cats don't necessarily all need to be given up for adoption. Some of them can stay, yeah. especially if they're healthy, they're well cared for, they get medication and they have, you know, acceptable places to keep warm and have access to water and love, right? So that's, that's what I'm trying to do. The problem is that when I work with the Humane Society, um, I have to pay for everything out of pocket. Because if you don't, then, then you're using their program that was specifically designed um, to basically get as many uncared for cats off the street. It was a great idea. But unfortunately, um, when you're someone like me who, who is living in a place where there's colonies and colonies of these homeless cats, you don't actually want to keep giving them cats. You just want to neuter the ones that are in your area or spay, or spay right? And then, then that's it. 
then you you bring them back. You bring them back to hold that place um, and to hopefully not increase the population or encourage more growth because that can happen too, mm-hmm. right? The, 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 the moms can suddenly see there's no male around. Well, I need to pop out a bunch of more kittens now, right? Mm-hmm. There can be an incentive for even more kittens to be born. So it's a really delicate balance because in order to use their free services, you have to sign away basically the rights to these cats permanently and you don't get to decide what happens to them. And often if they're friendly and they're, and they're healthy enough, the Humane Society keeps them and adopts them off, which is wonderful. No complaints about that, except the fact that it doesn't solve the colony issue. Yes. And because the city won't do anything about it, yeah, and that. they're Not like a lot of legislation and a lot of them ignore it. So the police don't even respond um, when there are cats that are hit by cars. They are not supposed to um, because it's I guess it's one of those issues that has become so large that now the council's way of dealing with it is just completely ignoring it. Um, So you have people like me who are trying to do what I can with the resources available to me. But again, the resources are all very capped. Um, And there's just, in certain parts of the country, there's a ton of TNR organizations or stray and feral cat advocacy groups. There's not a lot of that up here in Minnesota. especially outside of the twin cities. Yeah. So it's rough. It's a, it's a delicate situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And I mean, we could go down the rabbit hole of the problems that this has for a while. I think bringing a little bit of knowledge to people, maybe a little bit of uh, just awareness that these things are going on, I think is important. So, um, I mean, it, from anywhere from growing food to taking care of uh, you, of the colonies and your neighbor that might be there to taking care of your own pets, whatever. But, uh, you know, I do want to stray the conversation into a couple more fun things here. Uh, since I could tell you're going down the rabbit hole and getting all passionate, which is great. We love it. Um, video games. Uh, I love video games and you love video games. We play a lot of video games kind of to distract ourselves sometimes from the crazy things that are going on and all of our duties um and uh, all the things that make us want to scream into a pillow at night which i'm sure other people have these problems as well uh and, and it's kind of funny there's a stigma with the with video games i feel still even though our generation might be the one that it's like we're gonna probably play forever but we do have uh friends that maybe stopped playing because they had other things going on it's like it's hard for me to think that i'll stop completely i mean yeah there's other things that we have to do but there's always Time. We don't have children, that's so that's a big. That's a big. Yeah, a lot of our friends might have quit because they have kids. Although I would probably play with my kids. I would use that as right, a but they can't that. play as <laughs> as newborns. That's true, that's honey. True. They can't play video games as babies. Yeah, so yeah. you've got quite a few years to quite wait. A, quite a few years to wait, but I'll yeah. be, be back <laughs> if we ever have kids there. But uh, you know, <laughs> when you talk about uh, getting lost for a few hours, you know, relieving stress, having some fun or whatever you know it's, it's really fun and you've been playing skyrim of course again with the anniversary 10th year anniversary that just came out you got all that new content trying to go good at you know i'm randomly playing fallout 4 but we also play a lot of old school games so i do want to you know what, what is it about video games you enjoy like how much fun is it and you know when you when you think about real life like we were just talking about you know horticulture and like 
taking care of like the cats in the neighborhood video games is just leisure uh Mm -hmm. what about it do you think is important to have to you right now at this point oh um well it's just a it's a it's a way for me to become sufficiently distracted in stuff that has nothing to do with my real life yeah because it could be tough (laughs) you know it, it it's none of it has to do with real life thank god right but it's fun it's still fun yeah and you don't have to you don't have to think about anything you don't want to think about because you're fully engaged with whatever it is you're doing that again has nothing to do with your real life so it can be a really great mental break for people myself included who happen to be you know overthinkers yeah ruminators detail-oriented perfectionists you know of course that still carries over into my video games i've seen her for hours on her settlements so (laughs) meticulously placing that vase in the corner (laughs) skyrim's the physics and in in skyrim is you know you kind of have to like you kind of have to toss things onto the shelf if you want them to sit there. I've seen you and for 20 minutes trying to get one thing to be straight. <laughs> I, I'm I'm really good at it now if I don't say so myself. So I decorate, <laughs> I decorate all my houses in Skyrim. I have the Hearth Fire expansion. I plan on having all three of the homesteads. Plus all the new ones that just came. Then there's too. all the new homes with the anniversary edition. And I plan on literally decorating all of them. <laughs> um yeah that's just like one of the parts of the game i really like which is probably good because the next time we see an elder scrolls we might be you know rip friend winkle beards growing you know yeah yeah bethesda (laughs) they kind of torture our they they torture their fans yeah i think games could be rewarding just like you just said Mm -hmm. definitely helps you get away from from the Mm day-to-day maybe get lost in a fantastical place i love sports as you know from my podcast talk about sports a lot so i play a lot of sports games too as well as rpgs and things like that and i'll even go back and play old school stuff i'll go you know you know play madden 93 or you know mlb all-star 94 or something or you know some of the old fifa games on playstation like it's just there's just something about even old school games like even though the graphics aren't as good or it's like whatever it brings me back to my childhood you know it kind of brings me back to maybe a simpler time to help me get away from the i mean life can be stressful things are going on we're in a pandemic right now if it wasn't for video games i just i don't know what i do yeah this is year (laughs) one and we read books too but i'm just saying and we watch shows and we go for walks whatever but video games is also something that kind of keeps us i don't know uh just out out of our own heads maybe for right and i think i mean the 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 problem is when i when i'm not playing a game what else am i doing well i'm staring at my phone mm-hmm. i'm staring at social media i'm comparing myself to other people i'm comparing my current situation you know slouched over a like a microwavable burrito with a 12 hour old cup of coffee like trying to do my chemistry homework and I'm staring at my phone and I'm seeing people in all these exotic locations. Why the hell would I want to do that when I could just not be happy with my microwavable burrito and my sad chemistry homework and just finish it so that I can hurry and go play Skyrim 
and um, kill a bunch of trolls. I mean, that yeah, just radiators. sounds way better because <laughs> I don't have to think about what other people are doing because guess what? It has no effect on my life. Mm -hmm. it, it also has zero effect on my life. And people like to say all the time, like, well, video games aren't real. Neither is any of the stuff they're trying to sell you on social media. Yeah, I mean, Instagram is it real. <laughs> what does it have to do with you? Like, you, nothing. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's virtual reality as consumerism. That's all it is. And yeah. don't get me wrong. I'm on Instagram yeah. all the time because I like to watch people put on makeup for some reason. I like watching other people put on makeup. Mm -hmm. um, I'm into board games as well, too, which I yeah. think is another outlet that people could have if, if you don't want to be connected completely yeah. to the television and things like that. But. And I like seeing what my friends are doing, like what my friends and my family are up to. I care about that, clearly. That's probably it. I mean, that was the um, reason why social media was created, but it's used for other things. But again, it's nice to have another, a third place you can go. Like, it's not your life. It's not someone else's life. But it's something that you're interested in and you do have control over it because yeah. you're playing the game. Mm -hmm. It's just not your life. Yeah. So it's great. It's really good to sort of push a little reset button at the end of the day and de-stress, whether it's by like, you know, bashing in the head of a dragon or reorganizing my bookshelf <laughs> i like it's just something to do yeah and I, I mean too we talk about getting lost in the world creating it, it could be an artistic thing too in some of these games mm -hmm. where you can create your own world settlements sometimes you get to choose the dialogue you choose in the game now some of the newer games um and I mean, it's like uh, what Charlie Day's character and it's always sunny, you know, it's like when I'm doing good in the game, I'm doing good in life yeah. <laughs> because it distracts you for a second mm -hmm. from, you know, the crap of everyday life that most of us have. I yeah. Mean, all of us have things going on. All of us have stresses. And with all the things going on in the world right now, and none of you know, there's not a lot of great things that you read, read the news every day. It's not always great. So it's good to have kind of have that distraction, you know, small little wins also like they're absurd mm -hmm. most video games have like some level of absurdity and that's what makes them funny yeah so what are some of your favorite old school games i mean i've been playing mario again because why not i love platformers we've played crash band a yeah. lot um including the new one but the old ones as well you know obviously rpgs zelda secret of man so i was a, i love Chrono i Trigger. was a ps1 kid um that was the first gaming system that I owned. I was probably in elementary school, maybe second grade when we got a PS1. Um, I had never played a Nintendo system before. I knew nothing of Mario. I know it's weird, right? <laughs> but so my games were always like Crash Bandicoot, Spyro, Croc. Those are the things I yeah, played. All fun platformers. And then I really liked um, some, again, <laughs> very old RPG called Saga Frontier. Another good game. <laughs> uh, which I absolutely loved because you could play the through the universe in, I think it was seven, seven different characters you could play as. And their stories all kind of interweave together at different points. But you don't know that unless you 
pretty much play through um, each one. They all have different strengths and weaknesses. They all have different abilities. And um, the graphics are kind of ridiculous. They, it's kind of like, um, I don't know how to explain it, but it, it's almost like there's, um, it reminds me of like old school um, claymation. Yeah. Even where there's like little characters that kind of move in a 3D atmosphere, but the backgrounds are very two dimensional. Yeah. And um, that's kind of the old school graphics. Yeah. I didn't Again, care. A lot of, a lot of. I didn't care. People that didn't grow up with it would be like, "What's with these graphics?" The thing is, is there's that connection to to the childhood of playing, but also like. The graphics don't really mean a lot if the game's fun. So, like, that's why I still would play some of the old games, you know? My friends had Nintendo systems and also, like, Sega Genesis. And, um, like, some of the games I really like to play at my friends' houses where we would always play Tekken. Yeah, Tekken. The fighting games, you know, just yeah, mashing buttons. Fun. Mortal Kombat. Uh, Mortal Kombat was fantastic. Also, got, when I did get an N64, I was in middle school. You played the Gauntlet, Gauntlet Legends. Legends. It was, was on PlayStation. Yeah, I was a big fan of that. I was a big fan of um, Ocarina of Time, Zelda. And I played PC games, too. I had Pokemon Snap, but I really didn't know how to play. <laughs> Collecting those so Pokemon. It was kind of, I was just kind of like, this is... This is not yeah, my if thing. If you're not really into the universe, too, like it's well, I I was in. I had a Game Boy, oh, yeah. of course. Game I I had I had a yeah. like the Frost one, the silver blue, the light blue one. Yeah. That was like special edition. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's I've played so many random games, PC games too. I remember for the first time, but it was like I think it was on my aunt's computer that she had. She had Doom randomly, so I remember playing Doom. I never understood. I never understood. I didn't understand that game. And then you know, uh, there was like a golf game. So yeah, so I mean, games have been kind of there forever, and I love it. And I mean, obviously, there's some things like having kids where you might not be able to play games as much or or at all for a couple of years. But I don't see my I see myself being 75 and being like, oh, this game looks cool. (laughs) I think it's kind of our generation. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, we've talked about horticulture to colony cats to video games. Pretty random, but that's kind of like my show Random Reactions. You should check that out. But uh, it's been great having my fiance here to talk to you, come on the podcast. I wanted everyone to hear her wisdom and her wonderful banter that she has, right? You know. (laughs) getting those brownie points right yeah wow <laughs> yeah she's of course also in our fantasy football league so she was in one of the episodes of the quest for the green bull shadows of chaos um yeah my name in the league is the siamese dreamcats um which is of course an amalgamation of uh my favorite album as a kid which was siamese dream from the smashing pumpkins and my obsession with cats of course <laughs> of which course. i've always had of course yeah yeah, and while you're not really into sports, you've kind of gotten into the league a little bit. Mm-hmm. Pay attention a little. And you do like some sports. I know you watch soccer with me. Everton FC, even though I love, sad, sad I love, state of affairs there right now. I love European soccer. You know, who doesn't? <laughs> More people should like European soccer. I should. Yeah, I love it. I love the fans. Yeah. I love the atmosphere. It's pretty awesome. I love how... Um, I, it just the, even when even when drunken brawls erupt, it's 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 a different kind of drunken brawl than in the United States. You know, you, you also can't drink in the stadiums because yeah, 
you know, you have to drink outside on the, mm-hmm. in the atriums. You know, I have expect for, for most of the brawls in the United States to end with like someone being shot. Mm-hmm. Um, in the United States, you have people somehow jumping on the field and messing around. Like, right. You know, and and the, there's instances where people throw stuff on the field in soccer too, but they try to ban them for life. So right. They try to get that out. There was a dark ages time when people did that. You know, there's a lot of things, but you know, it is what it is. And you love, like, like you, you, you like the Olympics. I know that you'll watch the Olympics with me, especially the winter. Olympics. I love the winter Olympics. And that's coming up, of course. So before we close this conversation, which I'm sure everybody's had fun just as much as me uh, listening to this beautiful woman over here. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, I gotta keep oh going. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I wanted to ask with the Olympics starting uh, February 4th. I know some, you know, might be upset that it's happening with the pandemic, but it's still going on. There's nothing we could do. China's not going to postpone that. It's not even worth talking about all those types of things. So instead, I wanted to ask, are you excited about uh, any particular events in the Winter Olympics? What's your favorite events? I love watching figure skating. I like watching the curlers. Yeah, curling spot. Yeah. I love the luge. I love watching people do luge. I love the skiing, the snowboarding. I love that slalom, not so much. I kind of like the more you like the crazy jumps. X games kind of yeah. thing. Um, I used to jump. snowboard when I was a kid, so I'm always just in awe of like the, the talent. The had the half pipe. Yeah. Oh God. It looks like it just, I love thinking about how much fun those people must be having, how good it must feel when they land, you know, something that they've been trying to do. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There's just something about the winter games. It just feels yeah different it has a different attitude i always thought that that was it's cross-country skiing and then you gotta shoot a gun and hit the targets you know is it a gun or was it uh archery oh it's a rifle yeah and you have to hit the targets and and cross-country skiing is like the most difficult thing to do and like i'm convinced uh and i don't know if it's the most difficult sport in the world but it the endurance that you need and the coordination and the stamina i mean yeah it's just insane. Especially I was the best in the world. Yeah. I was on the cross country ski team in high school and I would get so exhausted that I would throw up <laughs> at the end of, of practice. <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it was, it was really difficult and, but it's a ton of fun. So I like watching, uh, especially at the end, right? When you get the straightaway, and then it's the two. Usually, and then it's like a two, mad dash. It's a mad dash at the end, and they have to photo finish. With and the they steam. have like zero strength left at that point. Oh, I mean, they're totally spent. I don't even know what keeps them motivated at that point. Besides the, the gold medal, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, they want that gold. I think the reason I also, if if, if I can oh, say yeah. this, one of the reasons why I like the Winter Olympics the best mm-hmm. is because I like. I like solo competition mm-hmm. better than team sports. Oh yeah. So there, there are some team sports. There are the some Olympics, team sports in the Winter Olympics. Have hockey and everything. But so many of the events are just highlighting like the person's individual journey. Yeah. And I really I can relate to that more because team sports were always really intimidating for me as a kid. Oh yeah, I could because you played you, you tried to play soccer at uh, Cal Moraine High School in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but I joined after everyone had been playing together for years. That happens a lot. And I just places. yeah, you, you lose the 
I mean, one of the reasons to play sports besides having a good time and having, you know, getting exercise and things like that is to just kind of enjoy yourself with something and maybe be outside if it's an outside sport. Mm -hmm. Be with your friends, kind of have a good I time. I like the idea and learn something, you know. Like, challenging your personal best. Yeah. I like that. That ma- that pushed, motivates me currently. To be pushed away simply because you're not as good as somebody is annoying because uh, not everybody's going to be as good as you. Not everybody's going to put in the same training as you. Um, I think it goes against the whole purpose of sports. Well, it's not even about like, like it, I, I actually wasn't bad at soccer i, I was just i was good. less experienced well, you kicked the ball around with me a couple times i was less experienced and i didn't know enough about the rules of the game yeah and that's, and there wasn't a lot of time taken to really explain that coaches don't sometimes if they're more worried about making state they, they don't uh, teach uh, as much as they should they figure if you're playing in middle school then you kind of are you know if you're playing as like an eighth grader or yeah. a freshman in high school you kind of they figure you already know the basics you already know this that and the other thing and the truth is I didn't all I was doing regularly I would go to soccer camp every summer yeah but I didn't want to be on a team until I was a little bit older and by then everybody had already known each other in the community for such a long time and sometimes the same families have been playing very intimidating you know people's daughters and they played and then they have sisters and then they're gonna play you see a lot of the same names in some of these things sometimes it pushes kids on The, the truth of the matter is is that there's a lot of kids willing to try sports but they don't really have they don't really have a means to do it until they're freshmen in high school and they're kind of pushed away from it right away. And a lot of them don't. Well, I thought it was a shot. really annoying because, you know, like adults were always telling you to play sports and gym teachers were always telling you to play sports because it was fun. And it was not about winning. It was about it was about having fun together. And it's like and then suddenly you're on a team in middle school or high school and maybe the team has expectations because they tend to be good yeah. and then it's actually not about having fun at all it's really honestly only about winning mm-hmm. and that was that was a shock i wasn't really expecting that cuz it's not like my parents were like you know involved in this really they weren't yeah. you know i was kind of on my own with it so it's not like i had any idea what to expect and after doing it for a few years i was like you know, it generally seems to me like this actually is all about winning and I'm not really having fun. Yeah, depends, And even though I had, program, yeah. I had friends on the team, but it, there wasn't time to like enjoy any kind of camaraderie. It was basically like catch up, know what you're doing, yeah. get on the same page and as the rest make, of us you make a mistake, or I'll, I'll dare you we're going to bench you yeah. and you're just going to sit there and just... I see it all the time, kids yelling at other kids, and I don't think that helps. I think it's like they made a mistake. You need to be like, hey, like, like calmly. Oh, tell my them. teammates were always very supportive of me. Like that, I never actually had anyone. Um, I actually, well, honestly, they were all very I've kind seen, and I've just seen some crazy things. And, you know. It's it was more that I just felt like I there wasn't space for me to catch up. Yeah. Like, no one was going to meet with me separately. And they're supposed to have these other types of teams, and sometimes even they're competitive because the whole purpose of their B team and JV team is to build towards the varsity team to win state. Mm-hmm. So even though you're on the school's B team or C team, you're still expected to be really good and to know what's going on. I just didn't want to hold everybody back, so. Yeah, which is unfortunate. 
you know, I hope more people can play sports and not have to worry about that. You know, I just, what I didn't always know what was going on in the game, to be honest with you. (laughs) I, I, it's like home. If if anyone knows the show home movies, you were like, you were like, uh, Melissa, Melissa, yeah, Melissa on the court. Yeah, I'm, I'm in my own head a lot and I don't, there's a game going on. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I, I'm a little bit of a space cadet. And on top of that, I didn't really know a lot of the rules of soccer. Um, I'm not really sure why I didn't, well, but now you probably do because you watch games. Exactly. Yeah. I actually understand the game a lot better now, yeah. <laughs> but when yeah. I was playing it, I was more focusing on, you know, block the ball, block the ball, block mm. the ball. Yeah. Um, and so when things were happening upfield for me and I couldn't really see it, yeah. I was always looking for cues from other people and they were all so sucked into the game that I was yeah. like, you were missing your mark. Yeah. Yeah. I was just kind of the cue i wasn't picking up on cues you know yeah. but that and, happens to a lot of a lot of and sometimes you just need an extra push and sometimes it's not there or it's not in the programs it's just not in the way essentially uh, that's why i see kids transfer like I, i've seen kids transfer from from big programs to go to other programs simply to get time to catch up like you said well and the to, you know the, and, and it works for them sometimes they end up being really good by the time you're the girls who were super successful on the team like the stars of the team they were always practicing together and then the coach would have everyone else in a group yeah and that just seems ineffective it, it seems it seems like mm-hmm. the really successful players who make a lot of the shots that win the game should probably be helping the others. Yeah. Or just, there should be some kind of cohesion. there. Some of the best programs I've seen, that is what they do because they want even the people on the bench. You might be the injuries happen. Sometimes someone gets a yellow or red card and, Mm -hmm. and, and you need somebody else to go in. Uh, sometimes it's a, it's a, you get tired. There's, you know, it's, it's a fatigue sport. And sometimes if you're playing a team that maybe the game doesn't matter as much in the standings, like you want to get everybody else involved. So you want them to be on the same page. So I don't know. Well, you also want them to care about each other. Yeah. Because you're going to, you're going to play better for people who you want to like. Normally the captains do that. I've seen that a lot of captains that I've seen are really good. And some of the, some of the teams that I've covered, a lot of the captains are really good. I kind of, getting everybody involved and sometimes the captains on the team aren't the stars the coach will purposely right. make the captain just someone who's good at speaking and getting everybody together yeah and maybe they barely play it but they play a huge role on the team so they're just as important as the person's core right you know yeah no one was ever like inhospitable to me in fact i remember multiple times when i i was a really great defender in a game and i felt really supported by my teammates yeah, and probably excited, right? they were very excited because I was shy. Yeah. I was shy and nervous. This is another thing. Yeah. And yeah, I was introverted and in that situation because mm-hmm. I was so unfamiliar and unsure. And so yeah. um I just eventually decided I had too much pressure from other parts of my life, you yeah. know, trying to get into college, all that other stuff. And I was like, you know, these girls, they're really good at what they do. They know each other really well. They're not going to miss me. Mm-hmm. This has been great. I'm going to sit, <laughs> I'm going to sit my junior and senior year out, yeah. you know? And that was a good choice because mm-hmm. I got to just experience it, see what it was like. And then take a step back. Yeah. 
I think our uh, the husky barking is a, is a good way for us to, to kind of wrap things up here. I do want to finish up. Uh, are you excited? Uh, I haven't met anything, but she's done it the last couple of times. Leslie Jones may be doing some Olympics commentary because mm-hmm. it's been pretty golden the last uh, several months. Yeah, I think, I think someone should give her a show. Yeah, definitely. Leslie Jones's Olympic show. Mm-hmm. Like, you know. Yeah. I would much rather listen to her talk. In fact, I would, would really, really like yeah. for her to just be around all the time. Instead of Bob Costas, yeah. <laughs> no offense to Bob Costas, but uh, sometimes I'm just like, I don't want to listen to this. <laughs> I mean, he's, a, he's, I have nothing against him personally, but no, every, every now and then I wonder if he's on this planet. I think a lot of it has to do with when you're an older journalist. Sometimes you get caught in that. He's, he's, he's great at what loopy. he does. He's Bob Costas is Bob Costas is a Hall of Fame sports journalist. Yeah, player. but the thing is, is uh, you know, uh, sometimes he can kind of say whatever other, he can say these yeah. days. So sometimes he want other people to come in, you know. But uh, I mean, it's been fun, right? Mm-hmm. I hope everyone else enjoyed uh, listening to to my fiance Alex here. Uh, thanks so much for being on this month's show. I think we talked about a lot of cool things, mm-hmm. don't you? Yeah, it was um, pretty hard for me to sit here on camera, mm-hmm. but I did the best yeah. I could. It was also pretty random, guys. Remember that it's coming out February 10th. Thanks to everyone who's been listening and supporting the Sun Drive Tomatoes podcast and YouTube channel. Thanks to everyone who subscribed, downloaded uh, the podcast, you know, liked and commented on YouTube as well. Uh, this wouldn't be possible with all of your support, and I really do appreciate it. Until next month, salut.